Hello, everyone. Before we begin, coming on to let you know there's a brief mention of suicide approximately 24 minutes into the episode. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Hello, I'm joined today by Samuel Girma, an Afro-Swedish film and art curator and activist based in Stockholm, Sweden. Samuel is also co-founder with Juliet Otto of Black Queer Sweden. Black Queer Sweden is, quote, a separatist, feminist, intersectional, and anti-racist group and movement by and for Black Afro-Swedish LGBTQ plus people. It's just people of African descent from everywhere. The term Afro-Swedish is mainly not associated with any like national thing or with the identity of Swedishness. You don't have to be Swedish national. Quite often when the term applies, it's for us who are like, you know, Swedish nationals or who have a permit to live here. While, for example, migrants, asylum seekers, you know, that term will not simply apply for them legally, but for us it does. Ah, cool. That's good to know. As a Black Marxist, I think I am more into the Black internationalism. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just first of all want to say welcome and thank you so much for joining me. I um, I have to admit I'm a little nervous because I first discovered you last year through the Black Lives Movement here in Sweden. So when I was connected to you through Lena, I was like, that name sounds familiar. And then when I saw your picture, I was like, oh my God, yes, I remember seeing you during that time. So uh, welcome. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here with you and for asking you to talk about Black queer, Black gay experience with another Black gay person is one of my favorite things to do. It's just like chatting with a friend, but I also want like people who are going to listen to us to find some meaning or something new or something in it. So thank you. So I know you're very busy. Uh, How have you been this week? It's been good. Today is a little bit heavy because today's 4th of November and it's exactly a year ago since the war in Tigray in northern Ethiopia started. And so I was at just prior to this on a demonstration for remembering that when the war started a year ago, but also to continue to highlight what is happening in Tigray. So it's just, you know, a little heavy thinking about back home, family and everything that is happening. There's just been horrible, horrible news. I'm sure a lot of people know what is happening in Tigray, but it's for those who don't. It simply can be described as a genocidal war. And so today's still a little heavy, but this week it's been okay. It's fall break in Stockholm and a lot of parts of Sweden. So I have a kid. So he's off from school and we've been trying to have fun. So I've been actually lazy (laughs) this weekend. (laughs) Keeping him entertained. Oh, yes. Or now he's keeping me entertained. So that's nice. So you mentioned the war. Is that where you're from originally? Yes, my family's from there originally. And I was born and raised in Ethiopia, actually, before moving to Sweden. 
but I grew up in different parts of Ethiopia. But my family originates from Tigray. Most of my friends and family in Ethiopia that are from Tigray are really going through a tough time because this is a very ethnic-based hunting. I would say this is a very, uh, I guess for those who don't know, Ethiopia is a very multi-ethnic country and different ethnic groups and different sizes and Tigray being one of them. I'm not surprised because I am a political scientist who studied the region quite intensively. I mean, I'm not surprised by the war, but I'm surprised by how the inflammatory language and how people turned against each other based on ethnicity. And that just really is terrible to witness. I mean, genocide starts with a language, right? Like describing a certain group as a certain way and then making them, you know, the dehumanization of that group. And then you can do whatever because the dehumanization process makes it, I guess, legitimate to commit any kind of crimes against humanity, mm. such as mass rape and starvation as a weapon and et cetera. Maybe this is for another conversation. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. I'm a believer in Pan-Africanism, a huge believer in Pan-Africanism. I mean, that's why I'm a Black internationalist. I mean, I do believe in the Black diaspora as we could be as more connected as possible. I mean, imagine like white people live in freaking Australia and New Zealand, the places they should not be there, but they went there and lived. They're diaspora there. North America, they're diaspora there. Globally, they are really like connected through, I guess, power. Black internationalism is a sense of force that brings about change in the world really truly like in the whole wide world it inspires movements it inspires global actions global change global discourses so i'm a believer in that but the african continent i mean the last 10 years i would say i've been so disheartened by the political developments in different parts of it i'm sorry to hear about what's going on there but i will try to get the word out as much as i can because i know coming from the u.s we're very much isolated in that way <laughs> through media and just, yeah, education. So, yeah, the way you just described that, I never thought of it that like diaspora, I connected with those of us from the continent, but I never thought of Europeans. That's the same thing, but I don't know if they process it or think of it that way. No, they don't. They really don't. I think they don't need to because whiteness is also that invincible kind of mutual default representation of humankind and also because it navigates the world through power the power that builds you know anything that is tangible such as borders or passports or you know anything that makes whiteness move flawlessly in this world makes whiteness not think about it mm -hmm. for example just like people in South Africa when there was a movement in South Africa to giving back land to indigenous people. It was not coincidence that Australia was offering white South Africans to move to Australia. Wow. Of course, white people don't think in that pattern, but it is really how they have operated for centuries. <laughs> I mean, Black diaspora is completely different for different reasons. I mean, our Black American siblings are there because of slave trade. Likewise for our, you know, Afro-Brazilians. I think all movements, decolonization movements across the world are inspired by Black movements because, for that, because Black diaspora has always had that, I don't know, 
radical idea and imagination of what could be a possible new world. <laughs> yeah, what you're talking about, I just started reading Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, I think her name is. Mm. And, you know, already I'm just like moved by it. And it, yeah, just hearing what you're sharing and that term Black internationalist, I like that. It just inspires me a little bit more to stay hopeful and stay positive. So, yeah. Are you based in Stockholm? Yes, since 21 years ago. I moved to Sweden when I was 13, going 14. <laughs> Great age to relocate. <laughs> now, um, my family has been here for a while, or my mom moved prior and my other family moved here previously during the civil war in Ethiopia, when we had another dictatorship in the 70s and 80s. Before I forget, I want to thank Lena from Berg School of Communication for connecting me with you. So uh, thank, thank you, you Lena. Lena. I really appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> but I want to mispronounce her name, Lena Kelgren. Yeah, Kelgren. I adore her. Like I said, I first heard of you last summer during the Black Lives Matter movement here in Sweden. I was actually here last summer mm. and someone else connected me to the online. I don't know if it was a protest. Yeah, because of COVID, it had to be done. Yeah, so that was when I first heard of you. And I didn't know at the time you were part of the LGBTQ plus community, but I just right away connected to what I remember seeing you like, oh, this guy is really passionate. He's very upfront and unapologetic about what you are sharing and, and the truth that you're getting out there to the world. So I thank you for that. No, thank you so much. It makes me happy to hear. <laughs> yeah, so how did that come about? Mm. I mean, I've been lucky enough to have been shaped by so many Black people in Sweden and everything that I think I know comes from a collective of thinking. But just to give you like a background story, for a long time, a lot of us Black people, especially young Black people, thought that we were very few or alone. And, you know, there are, of course, like large diaspora communities from, for example, like Somalia, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Gambia, you know, other African nations and you know we kind of like went to the same schools some of us we lived in the same hood you know so we knew that there were black people but we didn't I think understand that there was a blackness amongst us because a lot of us like for example the Ethiopian community we just focused on Ethiopian community rather than like what is our common thing with other black people here and I think that tends to be easily that way because diasporas always wants to, you know, make sure to protect what they know from their homeland, cultivate culture, food and traditions and whatever that might be. So we kind of grew up, you know, within our own communities. And then when the second generation, you know, when we grew up here, we kind of like, oh, there's so many of us. And I remember like going out in clubs in my early 20s and seeing like a bunch of us black people and then all of us got in and we didn't have language for it like collectively I remember like oh okay if we are more than five black people we have to separate we have to have one white friend in front of us uh. we didn't really quite have language for what it meant to be black as a collective in Sweden I don't know if you know Afro-Svenskanastriksverbund the National Association for Black Movement uh -huh. but that movement people who are in their late 40s and 50s started it. And that was our first encounter with like some organization that 
spoke for blackness and black people in Sweden. And I can say this honestly, it didn't always appeal to us because of age, I guess. We felt like we connected more with movements in England and in the United States because that was like, you know, fast going and our stories are quite similar. What our black British siblings are feeling, we are also feeling them and et cetera, et cetera. But something clicked in 2013. There was this online forum called Rumet, which basically means the room, and was started by four women of color and two of them were black, Judith Kiros and Valerie Shiana Backstrom. And the conversation about having separate spaces became really like topical. The media started to be like, why are these people of color talking about this by themselves without us, like the mainstream media? And we connected immediately to the platform, the roommate, like young people. And by we, I mean specifically the younger generation of black people, people of color. It was so amazing to see for me, particularly of the four women who started this, two of them were black and to see they had blogs. And I remember reading and finding language of what I was feeling. They put it in discourse and I felt seen and I remember like, wow. So from that, I met so many other people who, whether they had like panel talks or wrote something, I guess that was like the start of, at least for my generation and our generation. And by that, I mean, like, let's say, I don't know, millennials. Okay. It was very vital. And then two years after that, another separatist group started. And this is maybe good for you if you don't know. We can talk about another day, but it's called Black Coffee. So Black Coffee was an online forum that was founded by two people and I was a part of the admin group of the Facebook group and it was a separatist black online group that was meant to gather people to go to like you know coffees that's the name black coffee I don't know if you know the Swedish word for like having coffee fika fika, yeah Yeah. so fika is a very big identity here you know fika is holy so we just wanted to fika together as black people to get to know each other it just kept growing and growing with like black people across Sweden discussing in the platform, in the forum. I think it was also like a lot of trauma work was done on the platform mm-hmm. because a lot of us like didn't have language growing up. And then within that, we were like, but hold up, we are black people, but I mean, come on, there are queer people. So luckily five people within that group decided to start an LGBTQ section within the group. And that was just incredible because I have never felt so seen, so validated, so affirmed as when we started that group. And we held the first actually separatist section in the Stockholm Pride 2016. And it was incredible. I felt like I was in in a Marlon Riggs film, you know? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And then Juliet Tato, who was an incredible thinker and journalist, we started Black Queers Sweden because we were like, no, 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 Black queer people are not a side group. My entire identity now in my mid-30s is a formation of all of the thoughts, all of the collective work. The first Black 
Lives Matter demonstration actually was in 2016 in Sweden, in Stockholm. And I remember speaking at that. It was live in the center of Stockholm. I remember just seeing so many young folks, so many Black kids, so many Black queer kids. It was just such an incredible feeling to know that we are leaving a mark in the identity of Sweden because Sweden for such a long time denied us the languages of what it is to be Black because Sweden's self-image is this great anti-racist, fabulous Nordic country. That's what I used to read, yeah. I think a lot of Americans see like the Scandinavian countries as like cute little ideal place. Mm. It does everything to hide its flaws, including gaslighting Black people. Because race doesn't exist in Sweden as a term. Like, you know, we don't see color. And then you're like, well, we kind of do because it translates into every statistics that exists. Like, how many of us get jobs? How is our health care? There's so many things I can relate to. And one of the earlier things you said about, like, when we get together as a group, and I know in the States, make sure we're not more than five because people are going to think we're starting something and joking about it, but how serious that is because the reality is people do get like, oh my God, what are they doing? It's like, we're just being people who are collectively together talking. I remember when we started hanging out at cafes with the group, like people would either turn around at the door thinking what's going on, or they think, oh, I'm in the wrong cafe. They just get shocked. And for me, like as an urban person, I'm so interested in like seeing Black people take their rightful place in the city, moving anywhere they want, moving how and when is so important. But that time is hilarious until it's dangerous, <laughs> right. you know? Although the term activist scares me sometimes because it means like you know something, but I do feel that I am an activist because of the collective thinking that I know and my passion comes for the radical love of Black people, and especially, of course, Black LGBTQI plus people. Like I said, I was here last summer and I was with some friends and there were three of us that were Black. And so we were in Odenplan and so we saw the march start. And for me, I'd never seen that live and in person. And then to see it in another country, mm -hmm. I felt like I was in one of those newsreels from like the 1960s American Civil Rights Movement. For me, it was so moving. At the same time, it was sad. I could see a lot of young people and I'm like, we're still, still. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, there's another generation of people that still are having to fight through all of this just to exist as productive members of society. And I think some of us, if I may speak for, for example, for myself, I am at the level of not anymore engaging with whiteness in order to prove that we are human. This educational kind of narrative that we have had for, you know, centuries as Black people, I feel I am a part of a radical Black movement that is about actually talking to Black people and especially I love talking to young Black folks and the next generation to make sure that their language is not educational, that their language is about them and I think I can actually say that I see that. For me, I like what you just said, it's like I don't want to explain to anybody outside of this group 
that experiences this daily about this because that's not the solution. We have a lot of data, a lot of reports. It's all there. <laughs> I mean, I don't want young Black people to discover racism as if it's just new because that's what white people are good at. They, you know, they just discover that racism exists like yesterday. I want Black folks to just know that there are tools of love, radical thinking. I mean, Black feminists who literally have changed the discourse of feminism and studies around it, but also in politics and global politics and the colonization movement. I mean, it's also labor that Black people have done. That's why I am protective of that energy. So you mentioned that you came here when you were 13. How was that transition to a new country? It was special. First of all, I mean, when you grew up in Sub-Saharan Africa, you don't think that you're Black because everybody's Black around you. And the idea of the discourse that why wouldn't it be was shocking when I came to Sweden to find out that I'm Black. Later in life, I found out that is called the construction of race. <laughs> but the transition was quite difficult. The language was difficult in the beginning. I thought like, oh my God, I'm not even going to learn this language. But also the social aspects of life were so different. And then on top of that, you know, teening out as I was finding out properly that I am into men, but I didn't have language for it. I mean, it was just so much at once. I remember also like trying to be the good immigrant. In the beginning, I was like, I'm going to not only learn the language, I'm going to be better than them. You know, I'm Black, so I also have to be like twice as good as other immigrants. If I see like a Black person misbehaving, I would feel like the guilt of collectiveness. So I have to perform better than him, you know, which meant like, I have to show that not all of us are like that. I had those thoughts for such a long time in my teen years, you know, how to give that image constantly. That's another similarity, but it's interesting that you were coming as a first generation, mm. uh, like to use the word citizen, but American, Black American centuries have been in the country and we still process things the same way. You know, I have to be twice as good. I have to oh, yeah. prove myself. The fear of, oh my God, this Black person did this. That means it reflects on all of us. So I have to counteract that, even though this is my home country for hundreds of years. I think about that, actually, about my Black American siblings and their relationship. Black Americans have to prove that they are Americans constantly, that they are good citizens, that they are productive citizens as if they didn't build the country for free. <laughs> um, yeah. To me, you come across as a natural born leader. Definitely, I feel your passion, but I like that you acknowledge that this is something that comes about because of the support that you get, either personally or through the collective, as you say. I mean, I always tell people that inspire me that, and luckily, most of them are my best friends and friends, and it would be foolish if I would be like, you know, I am here because of I've learned this. No, it's lives around me that have changed me and continue to do so. So you mentioned that you came here as a young, like a preteen, I guess it's called now, which coincided with you becoming aware of your same-sex attractions. How was that for you? It was difficult because 
when we moved to Sweden, my mom had joined like the Pentecostal movement. It was quite a uh, difficult time. Like the church had a really impact on my self-image for a long time. And especially what is sin and what's not. So same-sex loving or gay, oof, that was out of the question. I'm not going to be gay. So in my teen years, I had a horrible, horrible time fighting it in so many ways. Thinking like when I'm an adult, this is something that would go away. It would disappear. Okay, just a little trigger warning. But when I was 15, I think that was the most difficult time of my life in terms of knowing that I was queer, you know, because the church and the relationships that I had was really like, you know, this typical, like, it's a sin or it's wrong or it's everything, but this is something you can be. So I thought like, you know what, God, if you can't fix this, then you have to end my life because I can't fight it. Every time people tell you or an institution or whatever tells you that there's something wrong with you and then you can't change what is wrong with you, I think you feel like a failure that you're doing something even more wrong than the actual sin, quote unquote. So that was difficult. That's also why I'm super passionate about LGBTQI plus rights, particularly Black LGBTQI rights. I am passionate about talking about it, passionate about making sure that any kid who sees me, you know, sometimes in the streets of Stockholm, I am just sometimes really flawless, fabulous, extravaganza, super queer. When Black kids see me, I want them to remember that they saw me, you know, because they would be like, oh, I saw a Black person who look weird. Because the world is telling them, at least within our community, that, oh, you can't be that. It's just the white people kind of thinking. I've also, like, found so many incredible friends within the movement. There are, like, a lot of Ethiopian, Eritrean, queer networks. Okay, that's good to hear. Yeah, it's amazing. Best friends started queer movements in Ethiopia, and they sacrificed nearly with their lives, so they had to flee to other places, but they started something, the conversation, and now they're incredible people running different stuff. So we engage in that, and it just becomes something I am truly passionate about. You mentioned a little earlier about Black Queer Sweden. How did that get going within the movement of black coffee we didn't want to be sidelined as a b group to it we really just felt like no we can do shit by ourselves from the larger group there was like an expectation that we should be grateful that we exist similar to being with the white group (laughs) yeah you know and i was like no 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 there was so much racism within the white queer movement and there is so much racism that we felt like, whoa, what is happening? We have to address it, but to ourselves. There was so much unintentional and intentional racism. It could look like this, for example. A, they would question why we needed to be separatist. I was like, well, you should know that as a queer person, why? But also the individual aspects of life as in, you know, within dating, like Grindr must be one of the most racist apps ever. Globally. so everything that we were going through there was like languages that we could have and also challenge the discourse and also because like to be honest we wanted to have fun 
to center Black queerness and also just be safe. So that was how it got going. Now, prior to you both starting it, was there a way to network for Black LGBTQ plus people? Prior to that, there was none. Which is weird, right? But it was also because we felt like they can't be other Black queer folks. I mean, I'm definitely intrigued. Again, I, I knew about you and I know a couple other people here, Black LGBT, but in this conversation that we're having, it's like, I have LGBT friends here, but most of them are not Black. So hearing you talk about this, I'm like, oh, okay, now my world can open up a little bit more. There are many and there are some events that are always happening, hopefully, like when things are opening up. Um, I clicked on the link in your Instagram bio, the Descent article about Huey P. Newton. Yeah. Very interesting. I know about him, but, you know, it's that thing of he was somebody from another era. So thank you for that. But I want to ask you, how do you connect with that and being what you do in the arena of activism? How do you connect with him mm-hmm. or people from that era, from the Black Panther movement? Thank you for that question. Elaine Brown, who was at one point the chairperson for the Black Panther Party, did a podcast recently on the, I think the podcast is called Black Imagination. It was such a great, like a really good talk. You know, she went deep in the Black Panther movement and she mentioned a little bit about Huey being early on when, and she was super specific about that, when the gay liberation movement started that black panther party was like you know it's our cause too she was like it's gay liberation not pride and i thought it was so incredible that she separated like gay liberation and pride because you know although pride did come from gay liberation it has become what it has become but my relationship to that era is because way before i found you know my movements here in sweden i read and i knew some things about them and i thought like their stance on decolonization movements in Africa, their solidarity with Palestine, but also one thing that inspired me. I can't lie, I thought their fashion was awesome. Like I thought like that political statement was so powerful. I mean, I would join just for the fashion, but then I loved the points. So I read their 10 programs and then the United States being the most powerful government on earth a group of Black folks really shook it in its core. I thought that was just like awesome. I mean, imagine that the United States is the most militarily, most powerful country and a group of Black folks through their radical idea and love of protecting Black people shook it to its core that the government had to create an entire program with an FBI, CIA to dismantle, to kill, murder, to defame. I mean, I thought like, you have to be radically in love with Black people to do that. And I thought that was so inspiring. So that article was also super incredible and that the one you mentioned in my bio, because it also talks about the personal aspects of activists. You kind of are expected to be flawless or completely and always coherent. And you're not, you are a human being. There's so much happening in life. I thought that was incredible to see what it costs in the personal aspects, but also because I am missing a lot of Black radical imagination in the Swedish Black movements. 
in the article, it said the radicalness that to resist the idea of being popular mm-hmm. in order not to be commodified. I mean, they protected black people, and of course, you're going to be hated. In Sweden, black movements, whenever we come as a group and we start something, it's so easy to be commodifying on that. You know how you can dismantle radicalness? Simply by disarming it, by making it popular and commodifying it, you disarm its radical politicalness. Capitalism will make sure to sell that or buy you or around you and sell it as if you can sell radical packages of a certain movement. Mm -hmm. So what is happening in Sweden, and I spoke about this with one of my dear friends and best friends, but also one of Sweden's greatest thinkers, Judith Kiros, who was a poet and a scholar and a journalist. She's one of the reasons I think I am super radical Marxist, by the way. Uh, she taught me a lot of radical ideas on how to practice radicality. You could see that Sweden really tried to commodify our movements by making it like, okay, how about we collaborate on this, you know, to make you neutral. To water it down. To water it down. Capitalism, it's disarming it because it has its personal gains. For example, you can be a spokesperson for a product and then sell it via black messaging. You can say like, this skincare is so good for you. And this skincare company cares about everybody's beauty. I'm sorry, but you can't love black people enough if you are selling to black people something. Have you seen Michaela Cole, the British actress, writer, I May Destroy You? Yeah. There was a scene or something about when she was selling products, the company was using her, the Blackness connected to it. So, yeah. Yeah. It's like that. So the radical imagination of Blackness needs to be protected. I mean, in order for us to build the possible world that we seem to look for, we have to resist capitalism. We have to resist being watered down. If I am not threatening the current system, I am doing something wrong. And I don't mean it like as a like, oh, we have to be gang, 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 come on. No, more the system have to feel that it is being challenged. I mean, in the United States, for example, I know like Black Lives Matter, not an organization, it's a you know, movement, but the people who created it have gotten a lot of criticism for what they have done with mm-hmm. the fundings, how they have approached to policymaking and policy change and et cetera, and et cetera. So in the United States, at least like there is a critical aspect to, you know, how they are maneuvering. While here, there really is not a critical mass yet. I think I get what you mean. There's a lot of well-meaning non-Black people who support things to a point, but I don't think you can ever really get it if it's not your particular struggle. I don't know if that sounds right, but... um... We have to be honest. We do live in a capitalist world. All movements are sensitive to that, but we have to resist the idea of becoming famous 15 minutes, and then we have to resist the idea of becoming influencers. To some extent, I do know my power in that I gain trust from people, but I don't want to abuse it by selling it. I don't know. Maybe it's a wishful thinking, but I, I don't think it is. I think we have learned it from history, from other movements, from Black movements in the world that 
most of the time what has killed our movement is capitalism, which makes it like a very attractive and cute and liberal project rather than a radical idea of system change, like a real ass system change or an imagination of a new world. <laughs> Not just cute and trending. I think I get what you mean. The problem with the trend is that you pass. I mean, I love seeing older people who still are in their radical ideas and that they haven't given up on that because they believe in that. And I'd rather be there. I would like to look myself in the mirror and be like, you're good. Oh, definitely food for thought. You give me a platform and I'll talk forever. So thank you so much for thoughtful and beautiful questions. I have here that you're on Twitter and Instagram as the Fab Blackness, which I love that name. <laughs> Where else can we find you online? Twitter is mostly because I follow like Black Twitter. Now I'm a little bit more active for the cause of Tigray and my fault. But Instagram is where I try to be personal, but also sometimes like I do activist work. Because I'm a curator in film and art, I'm also translating more of my activism to that, like how to sustain and not to burn out. And like I work with a lot of questions that I care about, queer, Black, and my art and my artistic practices and the films I want to screen are around Blackness and queerness and the art I want to work with. So that's what I'm doing. And hopefully I'll be curating cute stuff soon. So when I have lost languages around how to be public, I turn to the art and I get inspired by so many other people, writers and thinkers and filmmakers. Like I'm going to try to screen some of Marlon Riggs films soon. Oh, cool. That'd be great. Yeah. And whole like talks around them. You know, you mentioned fashion earlier with the Black Panther Party. And I'll say when I was getting ready for this talk, because your hair, I love your hair. And so I was like, oh, I don't have the hair like you have. You know, I'll, I'll work with what I have. <laughs> oh, honey, work what you have. That's what I do. Now I have it in a bun, but when I have my afros, when I feel the most fabulous, but sometimes I also like accessorize it with a little wig and here and there. Okay. Fashion is some of the most liberating things I express myself through in terms of like how I feel about myself. Whenever I go out of the door, I know my mood for the day based on how I dress. Like if I feel like in the stairs when I'm going down in my apartment, I'm like, oh, I shouldn't wear this trouser. That's how exactly I'm going to feel all day. <laughs> that I'm the same way. <laughs> I wanted to say quickly too, I haven't listened to it yet and I'm assuming it's in Swedish, which is good for me because I'm still learning. But I want to thank you indirectly because I came across your interview on this moment. Oh, yeah. With, uh, was it Jason Diakita, Swedish rapper, and Chef Marcus Samuelson, who I had seen before. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm definitely going to check that out. Yeah. yeah. I had fun talking to them. It's always fun to speak to heterosexual men. Mm. I mean, they did a good job, I have to say. Oh, good. That's good to hear. <laughs> I know Jason, so, of course, like, you know, I love him, and, of course, I wanted to do it. But I, I was also like, should I engage with two heterosexual men? You know, the questions would be like a little half watered down. Mm -hmm. But I appreciate that I got that platform and opportunity to say something. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out. Thank you so much. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.